0: I'm Audrey Bellis.
1: And I'm Yvette Montoya.
0: And you're listening to Brown Girls Rising, a worthy women podcast in partnership with Nylon and Espanol.
1: We tell stories about femme leaders and activists of color making our world a better place. Let's get started. Today, we're here with editor in chief of Nylon and Espanol, Mari Preciado. Marty, welcome. Thank you.
2: Thank you, girls. It's such a pleasure to be here and to kick off a very important stage, I believe, for what is happening to our community.
0: Absolutely. So why don't we jump right into that, Marty? Let's talk about this because for people listening, this is our first episode and we have you on today uh, for the very important reason to kind of lay the framework of why we've partnered together with Nylon in Español um, and a little bit about where Brown Girls Rising comes for us.
2: Well, I think it's very important for us in allen español to actually cover the issues of what are happening with brown girls. Specifically with this podcast it was very important for us because I think it's a great approach to actually to illustrate and talk about the different experiences and voices of brown girls. I think it's a voice that is not in media in traditional media or massive media. So it was it was more of a responsibility. It is a pleasure we love it, but I think it was more of a responsibility to offer a space to the spaces that are creating a dialogue and an empowerment amongst our community. So we're very excited. We're, we want to know where this is going to.
0: Fabulous. So for us, Brown Girls Rising uh, came from a couple of different factors. One of them came after the marches, actually, the Women's March. I was out of town and unfortunately missed them. Uh, I was in San Francisco and I was on a flight when the San Francisco Evening March happened, so I missed it here. Um, but Yvette got to participate and the sentiment of uh, following that with the action of what people want to do and this sense of helplessness that our audience was facing. And people want to take action after
1: that march, which was just basically everybody getting together and saying like, "This sucks. We have to do something about it." Um, people want to know what to do next, and I feel like this is the next, the next logical progression in that. Like, what are we going to do? How are we going to contribute to this conversation? And you know, we're going to bring this to the masses and show you people who you should know
0: about. And I think that's the biggest part, showing you people that you need to know about at least for us you know when we started Worthy Women and this podcast is a project of Worthy Women the number one thing that we heard from people was I'm tired of going to events and not seeing people who look like me on the stage not seeing people who have my cultural upbringing who share my experiences and so with Brown Girls Rising we wanted to do two things one we wanted to showcase a spectrum of how people identify themselves as women of color so all the shades of brown so to speak you know we joke in the office, you know, if you're brown enough, you're too brown, not brown, and in our own experiences, um, but for our audience members, we said, if you identify as a woman of color, we want to know you and as us in the audience because even Yvette and I, were audience members right we want to know from women who are making actual change that make our lives better and the communities around us better and the media hasn't always done the best job of portraying that because let's face it as marginalized groups that's exactly where we fall in the margins
2: and i think also something very important to follow up on that i think it's because traditional media hasn't covered the stories of of women of color that you have to find the alternative spaces in order to cover these stories. So I think this podcast is serving to the larger need and reach that much other media unfortunately is not doing. And also I think going back to showcasing the different colors and shades by saying that, I think it's very important because when we talk about being a woman of color, it's very generalized. Like we all have the same voice and we all share the same experience where so many of us have so many different experiences, history, background. And I think those are the stories that we're not tackling and that this platform is for people just to find out how many other women and
1: how different we are
2: amongst ourselves.
1: Yeah, and I mean, to piggyback off of that, what was your experience?
2: Well, I think it's very interesting because I... I've always considered myself a deviant and an outcast, in a way. I I grew <laughs> up listening to punk music, and I first arrived to, like, girl power thanks to the Spice Girls, actually, yeah. without knowing that the Spice Girls was a movement created by Riot Girl here in the United States. So I, I was listening to punk music, I, I had blue hair, I, I felt rebellious until I understood that where I was hanging out, there was no woman, no woman, period. So now then I realized there's no woman of color because it's a space that is very dominant with um, non, like I mean, more white people, right? So I start believing in where are more women of color in different spaces that we have. So I think that was my first approach when, when I started. And I believe that you never know you're weird or the other until you're in a position where you realize that you're facing discrimination or that you're facing racism. Because I think growing up, you're so naive. And I think even though you do become affected by institutionalized discrimination or racism, you're not aware of it until somebody tells you this is not right. Because you grow up thinking it's like the norm, you know, for people to look at you weird or to change your name or sanitize the way you say it or even tell you, correct you with the words because of of our accents, I Mm -hmm. believe. So it's it's like – and you believe it's a norm growing up until you realize, oh, you're trying to impose your culture on mine or just strip mine.
0: Yeah, and I think um – So I want to tackle specifically that. You mentioned you don't realize that you're different until an experience happens, right? And I know for me, I grew up in a, Uh, interracial, interfaith family. So I, for the longest time, talk about ignorance. I just thought everybody did Christmas and Hanukkah and was Catholic and Jewish and, you know, Italian and Mexican. And I just thought we all just did everything. And it was one big kumbaya until I realized, oh, maybe it's not so much the same. Maybe my mom's side is not so equally accepted into my dad's side of the family. Um, Or You know, in public, even, and we had this—we had this happen a couple of years ago, um, where I've been asked, "Are you even Latina?" Because they say Audrey Bellis—that's a very white name—or specifically when I was in college. Uh, I remember doing a roll call in a Chicano Latino studies class and my name being called. And the girl behind me goes, oh, look at here, mejorando la raza. And I had never heard that term. And I went home and I asked my mom about it. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm not Latino enough for you Mm -hmm. at all. So was there a particular defining moment for you that you can remember and say, oh, my gosh, I'm being made to feel different? Yes, I think –
2: Well, first of all, I learned about otherness through horror movies. I I grew up loving horror movies. So I would actually have like the VHS of The Exorcist and stuff like that. Or like um, Frankenstein or or King Kong. And I would never understand why is it that we fear of the unknown, like the other. Mm -hmm. And it's a very xenophobic rhetoric to it. That's how many people fear our communities. I would only see it in movies until... Um, I mean, I grew up in, in a normal family, I'm, I'm thinking traditional, you know? And we were at a mall, this is back in the 90s when like ice rates are very heavily enforced and hence racial profiling. We were at the mall and my father had taken the entire family on a Sunday out um, to go shopping, like something very normal, like a family activity. And I'm probably eight or nine years old. and. There was an ice raid, a checkpoint, and my father is an American citizen, and he is very dark, and they questioned him if he was a a citizen or if he had um, quote-unquote papers. He resisted because he knew, it's my father, he resisted, (laughs) and um, he got handcuffed in front of me, Mm. and I didn't understand what was happening because I'm like, wait, my father is a U.S. citizen, what, what why like why is he being handcuffed and questioned? And that's where I got my first notion of, oh wait, you just saw color, the color the color of the skin of my father, you heard his accent and because of the heavily enforced ice rates in, in the nineties, my my father was actually like a, a victim of that, you know? So that's where I understood, like, okay, this is not normal. So every like what I knew for the first ten years of my life was just like more of a naiveness. So that experience really really um, stayed with me and I always remember that moment and it really just empowers me to learn about, imagine all the people suffering and going through that.
0: Which must feel uh, very familiar with what's recently happened uh, with the ban, with the immigrant ban that we're facing under our new presidency.
2: So. Which is terrible, by the way. I think oh, it's it, 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 it piggybacks to the xenophobic rhetoric where we're afraid of the unknown, so we don't want it near us.
1: So I wanted to ask you, how have those inequalities that you've noticed or that you notice as a child and, you know, are obviously more aware of now as an adult, um, how have those impacted your work and your life and rising up as a woman of color coming into Nylon and Español?
2: Well, I think it's very interesting and I always like to highlight the point that I I do have a lot of privilege because I believe that I was able to have an education that gave me the awareness in order to work in what I do. And not everybody has that accessibility. And that's where I realized that there's a huge stratification when it means to resources and power. So after that incident, I actually wanted to become a lawyer. That was like my dream of like my entire life. I went to school for law, political science. I, I, It's like, that was my goal. Until I realized that I wanted to make a change through culture and not through the law. I wanted to make a change through the everyday instance and and lives of people through music, through literature, through entertainment, and try to find the representation of people of our community into the spaces that are needed. So I do believe that I'm a product of everything around me that happened and how I was able to take those instances and make them into positivity. But I also, I'm aware that's a privilege though, because not many people have the privilege to turn that into something positive, you know? We do have many people in our community that are are living in fear, especially now, and who don't even have the resources to apply, probably for scholarships or financial aid. And I'm very lucky enough that I was able to have that, but I'm trying to use that in order to bring it back to the community and see how we can grow together.
0: One of the things you really touch on there in the community, is you have to understand who the community is, mm-hmm. so that you can give them what they need. Mm-hmm. How has that changed, uh, or has it changed the way that you view yourself as a leader? Um, you know, I'll give you an example. When with Worthy Women, after the election, we had community members turn to me and say, "Audrey, what are you going to do about it?" And I stopped and I said, "Oh, oh, you, you think I'm going to do about something about it? I mean, I am for me, but I didn't realize that people were turning and saying." you know, looking at me in that position and for yourself in charge of such a large publication with how do you identify who that audience is, what they need, and how has it changed the way that you guide them? I think
2: going on on that, I think is very interesting. After the elections and the result, immediately, not even drying my tears, the next morning we had an email with many colleagues asking us, what are we going to do? So how does the the resistance look like? And I'm like, oh my God, we're organizing in less than 24 hours. So for me, it was very empowering. And many of us are finding a way on how to do it specifically with Nylon Espanol. We are showcasing different stories and different voices of different women in order for people to know that they're not alone and to actually really break that that wall of xenophobic and that wall of nativism in this country. So we're really working towards creating spaces of encouragement for women. And that's what we want to do. And also for our community. And I think it's very important that in Nylon Español, we, like our feminism lays in being intersectional feminism. Yeah. We believe across the board of women, across the colors, and across also the cultures. We, we can't speak about Latinas without not speaking about Afro-Latinas. And we can't speak about womanhood without speaking about our, our queer community as well. So I think in order for us to do the right, we, know how, we need to be aware on how to do it. And I think many cultural leaders, or in my case, like opinion makers, we have to check ourselves sometimes on what we're doing, if it's actually an inclusive matter.
1: Yeah, representation is really important, because me, I'm of mixed Latin heritage, so I never felt fully Mexican enough, and um, I never saw... South America or anything from South America really represented in Latino media it's always very heavily Mexican and very heavily white Mexican which was always an issue for me which was why I always say like the first time I saw Selena was the first time like I kind of saw myself on screen and I think it's really admirable and it's really our job at this point to make sure that there's representation so that other people don't have to feel that way and it's like great that we can all kind of identify with that and commiserate and be like, you know what, let's not do that to the next generation.
0: I also like uh, the point that Nylon is taking in highlighting these stories. You know, we talk about this at Worthy Women a lot. We often tell people, do what you can with what you have, where you're at. And a lot of the stories that you're highlighting are women who are no different than the rest of us, right? They're women who are doing what they need to do using what they have and how important it is that Anyone can be the leader if you choose. And how you choose to rise up is your own personal decision, but you have the option and the ability to affect masses just by taking your own personal stance. Because I think
2: we're also in a society where it's constantly looking up to role models without thinking that you can be one.
1: Or be your own role model. Exactly.
2: And I think. That's a notion of, um, I know I'm going to get very political, but that's very, like, colonization. You know, like, looking up to, like, a god or, like, a deity and being, like, you're my all and that's what I'm looking. Tell me what to do. Yes. When it's, like, uh, well, y- your own self, your own, you're your own role model, and, and you're the own example of, of what you're doing. So I believe that, I hope that with Brown Girls Rising, more girls will understand that. It's in them, you know? I think these stories is for them to feed themselves on different stories and learn about more women. And it creates a community at the end of the day. Yeah. But you find the strength and the empowerment through the voices and the stories of other women in order for everyone to, to rise together.
1: And discovering your own autonomy. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like that's something that has just come about. That women are like, hey, I can do this. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. And I can make my own choices. And now, you know, with everything that's happening, those choices are slowly being taken away. And I really love this whole movement of all of these radical feminists standing up
0: and saying, you know what, we're going to do something about this. Okay, so that begets the question. Do you consider yourself a feminist and who are your feminist icons?
2: Of course. I think being a feminist is very natural to who we are as women, and also or it being should be. yeah or being a feminist is something that I believe every woman in some way is without even knowing that Absolutely. they are. Absolutely, yeah. I my mother never even uttered the word, and I, she has all the traits of a feminist woman. My aunts, my grandmother, and everyone I know. So, I found more. Organic feminism, or like the real, real deal. Um, there's one of the schools of feminism that I love is called Barrio feminism, where it's the feminism that comes from the hood, where it's where women learn that they're feminists just because of the day-to-day struggle that they're facing, and that's what makes them stronger. So yes, I have a lot of feminist icons. I think from my personal life, from my own family. I, I consider them to be my feminist icons. And all of my other feminist icons come from pop culture and literature. Like my favorite writers, from Maya Santos Febres, a very famous poet from Puerto Rico, all the way to Sylvia Plath, all the way to Joan Tidian, to Selena. And I think Selena is very short to even, I think we always mention Selena. For us, it's like, you know, yeah. like that's like the big thing, but Selena is is an artist that we can unpack to learn so much about her. I think there was so much requested um, by her, by society. So we, she's probably like up there, you know? And so many other feminists, Joan Didin for me is one of the writers that created narrative journalism and I, I love how she spoke about society without judging society, just trying to illustrate society. So. Yeah, feminism is a very long conversation that we can just <laughs> but go it's a on good one. On. Yes, a very necessary one. And also to let people know that even though they might not use the word in their everyday, they do have instances and examples of what makes them a feminist.
1: I love watching people kind of come to terms with and discover their own version of feminism because I feel like maybe one of the things that kind of offsets, off puts people to feminism is the definitions of it. You're like, oh, well, I shave my legs and I don't want to be ugly and I don't hate men. And it's like, these are all things that have been constructed to kind of take us away from it. Mm -hmm. And then also there's people who are like hardcore enforcing certain types of feminism, which I really don't appreciate because everyone has their own relationship with it.
2: Exactly. Like, I think that was one of my ideas with the free the nipple movement mm. I, I feel that I come from a very traditional family and a country in Mexico where people they align to their cultural standards and I'm no one to tell them that they're wrong for like using a bra you know right <laughs> so I think like we also have to understand the story in the context of every woman not every woman feels liberated by showing their nipples and we should be fine with that and if there's women who do then they have their own story so I think it's an entire universe of feminism so there's a lot to it.
1: I'm excited to get people here and talk to them about their feminism. Mm -hmm. I feel like, hashtag my feminism. Mm
0: -hmm. Everyone has their own feminism. Like, what is yours? Oh, absolutely. I had to come into mine. I used to be so uncomfortable when people would call me feminist. And like you said, Yvette, I think a lot of that came from media portrayals um, and personal experiences, right? The self-proclaimed feminists that I knew absolutely were Mm man-haters. And they absolutely would tell me, You're not a feminist or you're not feminist enough because of how you are, the way you look. You're too prissy. You're too girly. You're too many things. You're, you know, setting us backwards. When you're right, it really, um, like anything, it falls on a spectrum. And no matter what you have, there will always be extremists. I don't care what it is. There are always extremists.
2: No, and I think what you're saying about feminism also lies on on being Latina, when people will tell you, like, it's because you're not Latina enough or you're not brown enough or you're too white enough. You know, it's like you're yeah. always trying to identify to the needs of other people. And I think that was a struggle for me that I recently was able to actually, like, just take off because I felt that I always had to accommodate to the needs of others. Like, oh, am I Latina for you? Am I white for you? Like, now I'm myself. So without, I don't have to apologize to anyone. And I I had to come to terms with myself and realize that when we're trying to identify ourselves, I think we're just trying to identify ourselves to other people instead of looking to, to ourselves in the mirror and be like, okay, what are you and what do you feel for yourself? But I think it's, you come to terms. So I accept my feminism and I accept how Latina and brown I am, but that's my own conversation and other people have, have theirs.
0: I love that you use the word unapologetic because we use that a lot in Worthy Women. And we yeah. say it's the movement mm-hmm. for women who are unapologetic about who they are in the world. And as a female founder, as a Latina, as a woman of color, you have to show up and be unapologetic because the minute that you are apologetic, you're now shrinking to fit somebody else's construct and believing that you're truly not worthy enough as you are.
2: No, totally. And I think that like, these are the platforms where women will listen to these conversations because I think you're understanding feminism to what it's been, you know, like delivered to you through so many platforms that this is finding a platform for people to understand oh, I didn't know there was that type of feminism. Or I didn't know you could still be Latina and be Jewish. Or I didn't know you could still be Latina and listen to punk music. Or I didn't know you can be Latina and have like a white last name. You know, it's like one of those things where I believe people will will be able to come out of the shadows because I think the three of us, probably there was an instance in our lives when we would have been shy to say who we are now, you know, maybe because we're like so mm-hmm. confident now. But it was a whole process to get where we are now.
1: Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. It's I, hard I hard would love to say that I was born
2: it. out of my mother's womb just being so confident. But I know. No. I want
1: to say I was born out of my mother's womb just like, feminism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that's not true. Do you I remember
2: don't... the first word you said, feminism? Like the first day you said or the
1: instance? I was in the eighth grade when I decided that I was a feminism. A feminism. You we were a <laughs> Feminism. You were the universal I feminism. was the feminism in eighth grade. <laughs> but like, I, I was like... I'm not going to wear a bra and like oh, yeah. I took it to that oh. like white 60s feminism yeah. because my, third wave. Yeah, my teachers were uh that. Mm-hmm. They had come from that. So they were teaching us this white version of feminism where mm-hmm. they were burning bras and they were out in the streets and they were just like, you know, not shaving their armpits and I was like, I was not on board for that yet, but I was like, I'm not going to wear a bra because that's the man holding me back and now looking back, I'm kind of like maybe I wasn't doing it right.
0: But is there a right? I think – so again, I think that's where we come back to. There is no right. It's what's right for you. And we talk about – you know, earlier, Marty, you were saying that you've kind of evolved organically into how you currently view yourself as a feminist and your feminist experiences. Um, It morphs. It's something that's always adjusting because the society that we live in is always adjusting around that. And I think, again, we have to remove the shame around what that means for people and this idea of – I'm not doing it right because if you do, then you're automatically saying. Well, then you're doing it wrong, which means you're wrong. Well, I was not doing it right because feminism isn't just not wearing a bra. Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) So I was like (laughs) – I didn't even have boobs and I was like, I'm (laughs) free. I'm not going to marry and it's so bad. I'm freeing myself from the shackles. No, but also that had to do a lot with like the relationships that I saw. So like I saw my grandmothers, both of my grandmothers, like kind of unhappily married to these men who kind of didn't understand them Mm -hmm. and like – they needed feminism. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. But, you know, it was a time when it was like the 30s. Like, mm-hmm. she didn't have an option. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw them as an example of something that I didn't want to become. Mm-hmm. And that was my biggest, like, relationship with feminism was like, I'm not going to let a man define me. And I'm not going to find myself in a situation like that where I can't take care of myself. Mm-hmm. And that was my introduction to feminism.
2: And I'm so glad that that you mentioned about the feminism that we usually learn in school. I mean, I don't know if kids in school like I don't know how's the high school agenda nowadays. But it it <laughs> it's was not great. It was very third wave oriented. You know, it was Susan Susan B. Anthony feminism very without realizing much so, right? that that was the times when white women were marching for their rights while uh, women of color were their domesticas at home taking care of their children. Right, and they
1: really weren't invited to that no. conversation. They were no. like. You know, rights for white women, but, like, you guys, mm, maybe not so much.
2: So it's it's very interesting also to to tell ourselves that it's right to unlearn the process that we have been taught through so many years in order to relearn, like, a new process in ourselves. And, unfortunately, it's not going to be in mainstream agendas. So it's going to be through platforms of self-education and community education.
1: The
0: biggest part of our education is uneducating ourselves. Of Of course. So, speaking of uneducating ourselves, uh, watching the media today and the climate that we're living in, I don't know about you, but we're hearing it from our audience and we feel it in our office personally. It's depressing. It's hard to mm. turn on Facebook, especially when we do a lot of social media. <laughs> and you know, I joke with Yvette. I tell her you can't, you can't turn on Facebook anymore today. I no can't. more Facebook because it brings the mood down. Because I'm just sitting there like, what? Yes, <laughs> it does. It he creates did what? It's a hyper vigilance, yes. and it breeds fear, and fear begets more fear. So you have to literally unlearn these feelings of panic and not participate in group panic. So how do you? Um, What do you do to stay positive and practice self-care? Because your job literally keeps you immersed in a political climate constantly. Your readership, your social media, how do you even begin to uh, stay calm and – positive in the face of that
2: i think i've never read the words breaking news with so much fear like i do now it's a prologue to the scary like stories like breaking news now what you know it's like and i do live in constant fears starting with the notifications on my iphone they're like immediate you know like they give you the day-to-day of what's happening um which is terrifying but other than than president trump I think his cabinet, his policies, the people that support him, his sympathizers, that's all that really scares me, everything around it. And I think the fact that for him to be able to release so much hate Xenophobia into our community, and for people to point out to us and and immediately hate us or think something about us. The other day, I was in a conversation, and someone told me, "But Marty, you, you're you're documented. You have your papers. You have nothing to worry about. You're not a criminal." And that's the dialogue and discourse I'm I'm listening to. Many people are like, "But you have nothing to fear." The thing is that we do when someone when there's a retort going around about our community facing. Um, is going to be facing discrimination based on what we look like, based on our language, based on our color. And for many, based on their religion, that is a persecution of who we are. And I think fearing for your neighbor or fearing for the person is freeing for yourself. It's it's a tearing apart of, of our
1: culture. If one person is unfree, none of us are free. Of course. And it's that, you know, it's that poem of like, I didn't stand up, Mm-hmm. when they came for them and then and they when came they came for, for me, there was no one to stand up for me. And I remember I was obsessed with the Holocaust when I was young and mm-hmm. seeing things like that and being like, Oh, you know, if that were to happen now, I would never allow that to happen. I would stand up and I would say something and I would be that person hiding well, Jews now's in the my time. Yeah. And now is the time. Now, now is the is call the to everybody who's who said never again and it's happening here and now and we all need to do something about it and we need to be responsible of course and i think
2: that the the mobilization and of our communities and how we are organizing i believe my responsibility is through education education is the strong platform and one of the strongest roads in order to get our community aware and to get them with the instruments, the tools and the resources that they need in order to understand. And when I mean community, I don't mean like us versus them. We're like, I'm teaching my community and it's all together. It's all of us together teaching each other what we need to do. And I think mobilization is going to come through the adequate education that we receive.
0: Marty, it's been great having you. Where can people find you?
2: People can find me in their hearts.
0: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Same. <laughs> right? <laughs> um,
2: across social media. Marty Preciado.
1: All social media. Nice.
0: Thank you so much. All right. Thank this you. has been Brown Girls Rising.
1: This episode of Brown Girls Rising
0: was brought to you by Nylon and Español and recorded at Maker City, LA in sunny downtown Los Angeles. We hope it's inspired you. If you want to hear more, the Enca audio recording can be found at browngirlsrising.com.
1: To connect with us online, you can find me at Yvette Dorama. That's E-O-R-A-M-A. And you can find me at Audrey Bellis. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Worthy Women LLC. And at Brown Girls Rising for future episodes.
0: Until next time. Bye.